2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: Courtney, thank you very much. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here's what's ahead on this edition, a Friday edition of The Exchange. Producer prices higher, inflation expectations ticking up with them. But sentiment also rose, the chance of a March cut looking less and less likely from the Fed, with Atlanta's Bostic telling CNBC he's sticking with his forecast of 2 but our economist sees four this year and says the Fed would be mistaking a, making a mistake if they delay. Plus, gold prices climbing this week, uh, with inflation still proving sticky. Is the precious metal poised for a nice little run? We'll explore that. And housing starts falling to their lowest level since the start of the pandemic last month. Uh, what that indicates about the spring season and where prices could be headed. But before we get to all of that, let's get a check on the markets. The Dow and the S&P kind of shrugging off the data as the day goes on. There you see the Dow basically flat off of seven one hundredths of a point. Turning positive briefly there in the last hour, the Dow had been down as much as 190 points, but nothing approaching uh, what we saw on Tuesday with that consumer price index number that came out. The NASDAQ, the underperformer there, as I look over and see it down th- three tenths of a percent at 15,853, uh, SP 500 essentially flat. Uh, that uh, decline uh, in the markets is uh, thanks in part to a climb in yields. Following that PPI print, the 10-year back above 4.3 percent. Let's take a look there. 4.29 right now, but uh, nudging up there and was earlier above 4.3 from uh, the 4.1516 about a week or two ago. As mentioned, wholesale prices posting their biggest increase since August and basically dashing any hope for a March rate cut, especially after the increase in consumer prices came through earlier this week. Now, the market's expectations for a cut next month have been slashed, and our next guest says the Fed will be making a mistake by not easing at the next meeting. Joining us now, Mark Sandy. Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leesman is with us as well. Mark, welcome. Good to have you with us. I'm wondering if, as you say, the economy is quickly approaching that, that sweet spot for the Fed, which is price stability and uh, economic growth at the same time. Why you, would, why you would think we would need to cut rates? Why not just leave them where they are if it's, if it's coming in, slotting in nicely?
4: Well, the Fed's got uh, two objectives, uh, Tyler. One is to achieve full employment. The other is low and stable inflation. And we're there; are pretty, pretty darn close on uh, on uh, the economy on, on full employment three and a half to four percent. We're full employment on inflation. You know, we're within spitting distance two two and a half percent on the core PCE three six twelve month annualized inflation expectations are well anchored. Financial conditions are right where you want them. So then, you got to ask yourself the question: If we're there, why a 5.5 percent unemployment? Uh, excuse me, a federal funds rate. I mean, that's well above any estimate of the equilibrium rate, R star. You know, the rate that's consistent with monetary policy, neither supporting or restraining growth. Fed puts that at two and a half. It's probably higher than that. Let's say it's three or three and a half. So, why do that and run the risk? And growth is gee, feels you know like it's slowing, particularly in the labor market. Hiring is down, hours are down, temp jobs are down, quit rates are down. The only thing that's keeping it, you know, moving forward is the low layoff rate. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, we are starting to see, uh, you know, signs of slowing in, in terms of overall economic growth. So, and, and of course, the, the financial mm-hmm. markets are under a lot of pressure when rates are this high and the yield curve is inverted. So, why, why take the risk? Uh, you know, when when just declare victory, we're there.
3: So, Mark says, Steve, uh, why take the risk? Why, why keep rates as high as they are, higher than what the Fed would describe as an equilibrium equilibrium rate? Uh, so, what's your reaction there?
5: Well, I, I think on the other side, what one would argue is that you're not playing for this year or even the next several months. You're playing long term here. Remember what Volker did? It echoed over decades, by bringing, bringing inflation out of the system, and. I tend to think Powell is playing for a longer game here um, and that if you were to go back and, and, and essentially uh, start cutting rates, inflation were to kick back up again, the trouble you'd have is you would not convince people of the seriousness of what you're doing. Uh, Mary Daly just did a speech called uh, built to last. And she meant an inflation decline or inflation levels that are built to last. Um, and, and so you get the sense that the Fed is playing a bit of a longer term game here. Mark is right, but I think maybe Mark maybe underestimates the upside here. The upside here is if you wring inflation out of the system, you convince businesses and consumers that the Fed is serious about its target. That could have benefits over many, many years. So,
3: Mark, why don't you react to that? I mean, Steve is is making the argument that by keeping um, the Fed's foot on the neck of inflation uh, with these numbers that have come out this week that are a tad higher, a little bit more than forecast, albeit as you say within spitting distance of the target. Why not go that extra mile and keep the keep the pressure on inflation uh, for not just you know, a 12-month cycle, but maybe a 24, 36, or maybe even longer cycle?
4: Well, well why? I mean, inflation expectations by bond, in the bond market, they're right where you want them. Look at five-year, five-year forwards, one-year, five-year forwards. Inflation expectations uh, among consumers, right where you want them. Take a look at the University of Michigan survey today. Inflation expectations, exactly where you want them. People are convinced we're there. And you know, the longer you keep rates this high, you run the risk of pushing the economy under. And you got to ask yourself to to what end, you know, for for what reason. Here's here's the other thing I just say. You know, if you look at the core consumer expenditure deflator, that's the inflation measure the Fed is targeting, mm-hmm. the two percent. Mm-hmm. You look at that three the past three take take the forecast for, for January. We're gonna get a strong number because we've got CPI, PPI, it's gonna come in 0.3%, point three, point three five. Take that—the three-month, six-month, twelve-month annualized—we're just north of two percent. We're just—we're there. So why keep your, as you said, keep your foot on the neck of the economy and run the risk of breaking it for—for to what you know, to what end? I I just don't—I don't get it at this point. And here's the other thing: I'm not arguing, you know, let's slash interest rates, but let's just start slowly lowering rates a quarter point at time, maybe once a quarter, see how it goes can always stop, you can always reverse yourself, you know, you can always do that if you need to. But I, I think at this point, the risk is higher that we're gonna push the economy under then we're gonna run the risk of inflation re, re, uh, reviving here to a significant degree. Steve?
5: Well, a couple things. First of all, Mark, if I'm not wrong, inflation expectations in the Michigan numbers were at 3%, not 2%, right? Uh, that, that's what I saw this morning. You're right though, guys, I got a chart in the back where I annualized, here's what happened, uh, uh, Tyler. We did a quick rapid update on PCE, core PCE forecast for uh, uh, the Feb 29 number. It's up a tenth to 0.4%. You can see that right there. But there's the annualized rates, 245, 240, 270. So Mark is right. We will be a hair above the 2% target, but it's going the wrong way except for the the year over year. And there's the the, the monthly uh, forecast right there. So... I mean, I kind of see it. I'd I'd love for the Fed to be able to cut interest rates here. I don't think there's a whole lot of downside right now. And maybe that's where Mark and I differ to the Fed uh, taking its time here. I think doing it in six months rather than in four months is not that big a deal. And I do like the idea of going every quarter, but being cautious here. And part of it is, look, let's be clear. Mark is a great forecaster and he has confidence in his forecast. I feel like the Fed may be a little less confident in doing policy based on its own forecast here. Mark, last word to you.
4: Yeah, can I just point one thing out? Look, uh, the Federal Reserve made a mistake back in early 2022 when they kept the funds rate at the zero lower bound way too long, did not respond to the inflation, the incipient inflation that was developing. You know, I don't want to cast aspersions because this is a tough job. Getting it right is not easy. And there's a lot of things going on back at that point in time. But they're running the same risk on the opposite side here. No reason to do that, given everything that's going on in the economy with regard to inflation. Declare victory and let's start cutting rates. All right.
3: Very interesting. Good argument. Uh, Not that it was really an argument. A very good uh, uh, presentation of different points. Appreciate it, Mark Zandi. Steve Leisman. Thanks, guys. All right, despite the uh, hawkish Fed or somewhat hawkish Fed, stocks have proven resilient so far this year. But our next guest says that thesis is being called into question. This earnings season as a slew of companies lower guidance. He's also seeing cracks in the consumer. So where should you put your money to work? Mark Smith is Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Advisors. Mr. Smith, welcome. Good to have you with us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Tyler.
3: You just heard the debate between... Uh, Uh, Mark Zandi and Steve Leisman, where are you on this? Would you take comfort if the Fed were to cut rates in March or certainly by May? Or do you think that's an an urgent need for the Fed?
1: I'd be shocked if the Fed cut rates in March. Um, And that's just because of the numbers. I mean, we've seen um, a number of different numbers come over over the last two months. You had Powell go on 60 Minutes, talk about he doesn't really see March being uh, a month where he could cut rates. So, no, I don't think rates are going to be cut. And what does that mean for you know, my client, uh, my client's not buying housing. I mean, you just saw the housing numbers that came out. Um, the rates are over 7% on the 30-year fixed. Uh, folks are staying where they are. Um, clients of mine who've been in their house for 20, 25 years, 30 years, um, baby homeowners who might want to move down to Florida or something like that, they're not doing it because they can't get good uh, rates on their mortgage. Um, and 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 real estate really hasn't budged that much either. So uh, for all those reasons, um, I, I'm thinking that many of the clients that I talk to don't want to do anything until the Fed has um, made up their mind on when they're going to lower rates, if they're going to do it. And they're, and we're all looking at the numbers because it's affecting uh, businesses that want to invest in their business because of where rates are. It's affecting folks who want to buy homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're all just watching and and waiting to see what's going to happen.
3: And in my notes, correct me if I'm wrong here, your view is that there will be no rate cuts in 2024. You think that's true?
1: I think it's possible because the numbers aren't dictating that. I mean, we've heard folks uh, throughout the day say two, maybe three, even had a few folks from the Atlanta Fed say he's thinking two. Um, There's a possibility if we continue to run hot, there are no rate cuts. And if you look at historically over um, mortgages, my parents had a 13 percent fixed rate mortgage on their on their home. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Powell and the gang is in it for the long term and keep things right where they are until they can absolutely be sure that inflation is where it needs to be. And last time I checked, we're not at the 2 percent handle yet.
3: So when you when you uh, counsel clients on where they should put their money right now or where you manage it for them, what are you telling them and where are you putting that cash?
1: Don't fight the Fed. The Fed is making sure that inflation is beat and they're going to continue to have this hawkish approach until that happens. I haven't seen the numbers dictate that yet. No one I've seen on this broadcast has said that yet. So you're going to have to you know look at in a in a recession because i think that's what the fed might want to try to start by basically uh, like our last guest mark said um, try to crush the economy if that happens you want to make sure that you are in large cap us companies because if a recession happens you already start seeing the number one reason why the stock market has done well is because of consumers you're already starting to see cracks in consumers a trillion dollars in credit card spending the highest it's ever been in this country uh, so if you start to see cracks in the consumer, you uh, you will definitely, I think, see a recession eventually. And if that happens, you want to be in large cap names. Companies that have uh, huge, robust portfolios, have made it out of the pandemic leaner and meaner than ever, are implementing AI and are global. Most of the S&P 500, 30 percent of their revenue overseas. So that's where I would be. That's where I'm telling my clients to be. We talk and, um, although growth. Go ahead.
3: No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I thought you were finished. Uh, Mark, I, we talk a lot about the Magnificent Seven here, maybe now the Magnificent Six, because Tesla doesn't look all that magnificent anymore. Um, but would you include those on your buy list here or are there are there some among them that you would say these are just too pricey to touch right here?
1: Listen, I have clients who won't open an account with me if they don't have some of the Magnificent Seven in there because it's their, their products are using every single day. I like to call them generational holes, stocks that you are not going to sell until you maybe retire and want to go into all municipal bonds and be in fixed income and not have to worry about this market anymore. But if you, as long as you're an investor and you want to take risks, how do you not own some of the most profitable companies that this country has ever seen? And so I don't care if they go down 10 15%. I'm looking at that as, as an opportunity to buy and, um, and and a lot of these uh, clients that I have are also mandating that they have these stocks. And I, I got to tell you, um, if you have companies like we saw you know, last week, they're up 20 percent in one day. You know, you even have some of these uh, millennials that don't even want to buy Bitcoin because you have some of these companies who are doing uh, terrific and they actually have real businesses with real growth and uh, earnings.
3: Generational holds is a phrase that I'm going to take away from this conversation, Mark. Thank you very much. That's a good one. Very Buffett of you. Love it, though, man. Very nice. Thank you, uh, Mark Smith of Wells Fargo. Coming up, the price of gold up 10% since October. But what does that say about the state of inflation and commodities? We'll explore that with the CEO of one mining company with operations around the world. Plus, if you've ever gotten a credit card offer in the mail, there's a good chance that FICO's AI-powered software had something to do with it. We'll speak with the CEO at FICO on the role artificial intelligence is playing in financial services and his business when The Exchange returns after this. This is The
6: Exchange on CNBC. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Next, go, give it to Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.
0: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
3: Right, welcome back, everybody, to the exchange. Gold prices popped after Tuesday's CPI report climbing again today on uh, the uh, PPI data. There you see it, up uh, five-tenths of a percent. Copper on pace for its best week since December 1st. Our next guest knows a thing or two about both of those minerals. Let's bring in Amar Aljundi, president and CEO of Agnico Eagle Mines. Agnico reported a beat on the top and bottom line after the bell yesterday. Uh, congratulations on that, mister Aljundi. Al-Jundi. Uh, business is good, then.
7: Business is very good, and it's nice to be on the show,
3: Tyler. Well, it's great to be here. Where are you seeing uh, the greatest demand? Uh, in, is it in gold or other minerals, or both, or all?
7: All. Uh, you know, there, there. So, gold is both a commodity and a currency. On the on the commodity side, we are seeing very strong markets, and we expect to see strong markets. Um, you know, the one thing I would say, uh, Tyler, about commodities, especially. Uh, important critical metals is it's not just uh, uh, what you're mining these days, it's where you're mining. And and this whole issue of uh, security of supply. Uh, You know, the West, we've been accustomed to security of supply of energy. I think the next 15 or 20 years, it is going to be uh, equally important to secure uh, metal supply. Uh, With regards to gold, which trades as both a commodity and a currency, it's benefiting from the commodity cycle, but it's also benefiting, uh, frankly, from uh, the currency cycle. And, and by that, I mean it really is the only um, hard currency uh, in the world that's not subject to, uh, to the printing press.
3: Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it has that, that role as a store of value. Your operations are across the globe, Canada, Australia, Finland, Mexico, I assume some in the United States or developing uh, there in the U.S. and Colombia. So that speaks to that question of security of supply. I mean, if you're relying on Canada, Australia, Mexico, among others, Finland, you're looking at pretty secure supply chains that are not subject to threat or political instability, etc. A
7: hundred percent, Tyler. And and look, there's... You know, we need to mine, the world needs to, to mine critical resources all over, in all countries. But our view at Agnico Eagle is we are regional players based on uh, the best regions in the world. And, and and we define the best regions as, of course, you have to have the uh, uh, geologic potential, but for multiple mines over multiple decades. And importantly, you have to have the political stability to be able to mine multiple mines for multiple decades. I, I know that sounds self-evident, but in our business, you're investing billions of dollars over decades. Um, and uh, you know what? Once you build a mine, you can't move it.
3: Forgive me for not knowing this. And I asked this question out of, out of genuine curiosity because I don't know how the gold mining business works. But when you yeah. extract an ounce or 16 ounces or 100 ounces of gold, uh, yeah. do you then refine
7: it and then who buys it from you and at yeah. what price? <laughs> who are you selling to? You know, that's an excellent question, and, and, and I'm not sure that the average person knows that. And it gets to the, this point of it being a currency. So we and other uh, miners, we, we mine gold and we produce something called dore. And dore is really, a, it's a bar, kind of looks like gold, but it's not pure gold. It might be 50%, 70% gold, and then you'll have silver uh Copper, you know, what else? Other things in it. The important thing is we then send that to refineries, accredited refineries Mm. um, in different parts of the world. And interestingly, Tyler, uh, once it's refined into uh, LBMA, in other words, uh, you know, 99.9% gold, it effectively becomes a currency because um, we sell it uh, basically to banks. Uh, we don't. We don't really sell it to uh, retail. We don't sell it to jewelers. The banks buy it, and it and it really becomes part of of. Uh, 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 it's 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 more of a currency. It's fungible. You know, one one barrel of oil in Texas isn't the same price as of a, of a barrel in Alberta, but an ounce of gold in Kazakhstan is worth exactly the same as an ounce of gold in in Toronto. Um, and that's one of the reasons it's a currency. So so when you take that that block that you described that has
3: other things in yeah. it and you have it refined you're still the the owner of that of that Correct. property. You're paying to have it refined into the 99% Correct. pure gold and then you sell it usually to a bank. Correct. Very interesting. For the price it is whatever the global price is that day.
7: I- exactly. It's it's almost like you know a good analogy would be we are mining a currency. Mhm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't become a currency until it's fungible, uh, which means it has to be refined. But our business—I mean, we don't—we uh, yeah. don't have a marketing team. We don't—we don't have to, you know, go out and find somebody to buy it. Uh, it the market is out there, and 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 uh, you know, the, the banks start with it, and then they move it on.
3: It, and it, and and the bank the bank buys it, and what how does it get delivered to them by truck? <laughs> I'm curious. And wh- <laughs> how, where do I find those <laughs>
7: trucks? How can I intercept them? <laughs> <laughs> again, uh, again, and I and I know I'm overusing it, but it's a currency, so it doesn't actually have to get delivered. Interestingly, it, you can have it delivered to you, uh, mm-hmm. and you know uh, a lot of central banks do have it delivered, but a lot of central banks keep their gold in London.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, and and again, it is um, you know if they if they want to sell, they just pick up the phone and 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 sell it. They mm-hmm. they don't actually mm-hmm. have to move cool. it. Again, very similar to U.S. dollars. Amar, thank you so much for educating
3: me. I I learn something. I learn something every day, uh, but uh, we really do appreciate it.
7: It's it's a pleasure. Thanks for the time. We appreciate it.
3: All righty. Coming up, we're going around the world in three buys and a bail featuring this name, up more than 20% to start the year. Our trader says it's the best way, the best way bar none, to play the Japanese market. Uh,
6: We're back after this.
3: All right, let's look at the Dow right now, which is basically flat, down 4 one-hundredths of a percent at 38,757. Far cry from the re- reaction the other day, Tuesday, to the uh, core, to, uh, the CPI numbers. Today's PPI numbers, a little bit hot, uh, but not the, uh, the really scorching uh, response from the markets. Coming up, a pair of C-suite views on the impact artificial te- intelligence is having on their business. The CEOs of digital realty and financial services firm FICO will join us next.
8: Welcome back. I'm Leslie Picker with your CNBC News update. President Biden spoke earlier reacting to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's reported death. And when asked if it was an assassination, Biden said this.
5: We don't know exactly what happened, but there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was the consequence of something that Putin and his, and his thugs did.
8: U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito has temporarily halted a $2.4 billion settlement from the Boy Scouts of America for decades of sex abuse claims today after a group 144 sex, uh, sex abuse victims asked the Supreme Court to block it last week, saying that the deal would unlawfully keep them from pursuing other organizations that aren't bankrupt, such as the churches and insurers. And officials in Kansas City announcing today that two juveniles have been charged in connection with the shooting at the Super Bowl parade that left one woman dead and 22 others injured. They were officially charged yesterday on gun-related and resisting arrest charges and are being held in a juvenile detention center. I'll send it back over to you, Tyler.
3: All right. I'll see you in a little bit. Uh, thank you very much, Leslie. Homebuilders under pressure today after January housing starts posted the biggest monthly decline since April of 2020. And that hotter-than-expected wholesale price report sent mortgage rates soaring. Diana Olick has the details. Hi, Di.
0: Hey, Ty. Yeah, first on mortgage rates, the average on the 30-year fixed jumped 11 basis points this morning to 7.14%, that according to Mortgage News Daily. And that after the producer price index came in hot, sending bond yields higher. It is the highest mortgage rate we've seen in two months. Then we got the January read on residential construction this morning. The headline number was a huge miss. Total starts down nearly 15% from December. Breaking it out, though, multifamily was the main driver, down nearly 36% month to month. We know No apartment developers are pulling back because there are so many new units already coming on the market this year, a record number, in fact, last year and this year. Single family was also down much more than expected. That's a bit surprising, though, given the strong new home sales number we saw in December. That sent stocks, of course, of the big names like Lenar, Pulte, DR Horton down, now off around 2% on the day. Interesting though, while starts were way down, single family building permits, which are an indicator of future construction, rose 1.6% month to month, and were up 36% from January of last year. So builders still see a runway ahead. But with rates rising again now and numbers coming in showing inflation still a problem, let's just say it's not a great way to get into the spring housing market, which, by the way, Tyler, unofficially starts this holiday weekend.
3: All right, Diana, stick around uh, as we uh, bring in uh, a CEO to talk a little bit more about the a sliver of the realty market. Uh, one of the uh, biggest laggards in the S&P 500 today, but shares up more than 20 percent over the past year, thanks to the rise in generative AI. The company announced new developments to uh, meet growing demand in its release yesterday. Joining us now to discuss Digital Realty is Digital Realty CEO Andy Power and Diana Olick. Welcome to both of you. Mr. Power, let's get uh, yesterday's uh, report out of the way. I would say that most of the people talking about it have called it mixed. Uh, The guidance was a little bit below consensus estimates. Can you explain why?
9: Hey, thanks, Tyler and Diana, great to see you both again. Uh, so we just came off our fourth quarter earnings call. Uh, the, the day prior, there was a run-up on no news in our stock, uh, and obviously we're not uh, loving where we are today. But I think if you read through uh, many of those analyst reports, I think most folks are seeing the bigger picture here of a reacceleration of growth. Uh, we capped off of 2023 with record 500 new customers to our platform that totals 5,000 customers. Uh, We've increased our spend in terms of new development projects. Uh, We had records in our pricing, and and our value proposition has really been resonating. Uh, And we did a lot of work last year bolstering the balance sheet and positioning ourselves for longer-term sustainable organic growth. Uh, And uh, I think uh, time will tell that we'll prove out uh, and and demonstrate that.
3: So you, you think you're going to have uh, sustained growth. But I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. then why the, uh, the, guidance es- the guidance estimates or forecasts were lower than, than some of the uh, street expected.
9: So, we, so we, our top line guidance was about 7 percent uh, revenue growth and 10 percent EBITDA growth normalized for s- asset sales we did last year. We brought into the company sizable billions of dollars of capital through joint venturing of hyperscale, stabilized parts of our portfolio, allowing us to position ourselves for incremental investments in higher ROI business. On an apples for apples basis, we, we lost essentially EBITDA uh, as we lost selling shares in those assets. Uh, that takes a toll, and we delevered about a turn and a half of EBITDA during the year, and now I think it sets us up for a smoother path of growth for years to come. Die?
0: Andy, you and I talked last summer about how higher inflation was having an effect on deals, on property valuations, on new development. And you said you did expect to see rates come down. Now we're getting these hotter than expected inflation reports in just this month. Does that concern you going forward, especially when you have new development deals? You've got a $7 billion deal with Blackstone to develop new properties.
9: I'd say we've we're very fortunate to be in a sector where the supply demand imbalance has been moving in our favor for, for some time, and we've been able to deploy uh, capital at higher and higher ROIs. Uh, we're north of 10% on a development pipeline of half a gigawatt, that when fully built out will be $6 billion of investments. Uh, that's in addition to what we announced at the end of last year. Partnering with Blackstone, one of the largest asset managers, accelerating about 20% of our three gigawatt land bank. So, inflation certainly hits us in our build costs, but the demand, be it hyperscale cloud compute, hybrid IT, and now artificial intelligence, is well outpacing supply, allowing us to deploy capital uh, at at higher attractive ROIs. Compare today's
3: demand. You talk about
0: AI, which is.
9: Oh, go ahead. I'm
3: sorry, Diana. Go ahead.
0: I'm oh, sorry. I, I, I was told that was the next question. I just wanted to follow up on AI because you brought it up. You are the landlord for AI as it is. Do you see any of that demand flattening from AI, or do you think that the growth trajectory is still as strong as you saw it in the past year?
9: Listen, we, we've been at the forefront of this for many, many years before I even arrived at Digital Realty. We're uh, NVIDIA, DGX certified. Uh, we were one of the first advocates supporting their H100s uh, this last year, we saw uh, applications in the call 100 kilowatts for ad tech, manufacturing, enterprise private AI use cases ranging to north of 30 megawatts. And I can tell you 2024, that, that demand trend is accelerating when it comes to AI. And here at digital, we're well positioned to serve it with large capacity blocks uh, totaling 3 gigawatts around the world, 50 plus metropolitan areas to support the, the, the workloads of AI to come. Uh, so I don't see any flattening in AI demand as it relates to the data center industry. So
3: I got two questions I want to squeeze in, so we'll have to go quick here. Number one, is AI a bigger thing for your business than cloud was or is?
9: So AI is a lot, lot similar with cloud, but a little bit different. First off, it's much larger out of the gates. and It's moving much faster than cloud ever did out of the gates. Mm-hmm. We're talking 100 gigawatt type of deployments uh, from some of these customers moving rapidly. Uh, another difference it's pushing the power densities now digital that's our heritage we've been we came with this business from uh, an engineering expertise and serving those hyperscalers mm-hmm. and we've been able to have diversity of, of infrastructure to meet that AI demand but it all comes back to the data they're using these these called large language model training and inference and ultimately private data sets will go back to these where the data sits today mm-hmm. and again the words of Diana being the home we like the word home versus landlord to AI and data is what digital realty is about.
3: Okay, let's let's go to the last question, and that would be this. You've talked about gigawatts and gigawatts and hundreds of gigawatts, millions of gigawatts. Are you able to source all the power you need to fuel these uh, data centers, or is that a problem?
9: That's an industry-wide problem, uh, whether it's power generation, power transmission, renewable sources, supply chain elements. Uh, I think that is certainly something that the industry is grappling with. We're very fortunate that we've been in this business for 20 plus years now. We have large contiguous capacity blocks mm-hmm. uh, next to the Dulles Airport, in Frankfurt, Paris, Seoul, around the world. Uh, we have customers already there that wanna expand and grow. Uh, so uh, while it, it is certainly a, a headwind for the industry, it's something where our value proposition to those customers really shines.
3: All right, Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate it. Andy Power, Diana Olick, thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. All right, FICO is another company leveraging AI in two lines of business, scores and software. FICO builds the algorithms that credit bureaus like Equifax or credit issuers use to determine consumer credit scores and the software that banks use for consumer products. Joining us now is William Lansing, CEO of FICO. Mr. Lansing, welcome. Good to have you with us. I uh, let's let's hope that uh, people can hear better than I did. I didn't hear you on that. But at any rate, let me ask you this. How is AI changing what you do?
10: Well, um, you know, we're an analytics company and we've been at it for many years. We use neural nets and machine learning and other forms of AI in in some of our products, um, but not all of our products. And, you know, it's because we serve banks, financial institutions, heavily regulated by fair lending laws and regulations and so there's limits to where and when and how you can use AI. Um, where it's most useful for us is in our Falcon fraud business, where we are the largest player in credit card fraud detection, and so we've been been using it there for quite a long time. Um, on the uh, on the underwriting side, I would say that it's going to take longer before AI really works its way in, because we have. Um, we you know, we we just have
3: some challenges there with yeah, the regulation. Why is, that? Why is it the, the, why is it why is it more challenging? That's interesting.
10: The you know, the regulators who are focused on fair lending um, want to make sure that they understand how the models work, make sure that there's not a lot of bias, um, make sure that uh, that that people aren't being discriminated against in the algorithms that are being used to evaluate their credit worthiness. And so there's a lot of rules about transparency and, and objectivity and and the science around it. Um, and so we, you know, obviously we comply with those rules to make sure that our, our banking customers are in compliance. Um, there are, you know, there are some interesting opportunities. We wind up using, we use generative AI for synthetic data. So that helps us in, in building things. Um, we have patents in this area where we have uh, applied blockchain to, um, to AI. And what that lets you do, you know, because of the immutability of the blockchain, Mm -hmm. Um, and and the ability to understand where and when and how things occurred in this ledger, we can go back and understand what's going on in the model building. And So as we build our models, we leverage blockchain to do it. We have an Ethereum-based ledger to do it.
3: So I I was interested, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong here, about how your business works. In other words, you're the provider of the analytical software to a a TransUnion or uh, Equifax Experian, or whatever it's called now, and, and to other other uh, people in the credit world. That's number one. And in terms of your bi- business where you're doing credit card or, or loan security, I assume it's the same thing. You're not act- you're selling analytics or software to those people who are touching the consumers, right? In other words, you're that not... That is exactly it. Got it. That, okay. No, that's exactly it.
10: We're, mm-hmm. We are in the analytics business, not the data business. And so what happens is, you know, if... if if a lender wants to understand whether a consumer is likely to repay a loan, uh, then you know they'll they'll pull the credit file from the credit bureau and they'll ask for a FICO score. And what the FICO score does is it it measures the propensity of a consumer to repay debt. That's um that's an algorithm built on top of the credit credit card payment data that's housed at the credit file at the credit bureaus. Mm-hmm. And and um, it's you know if there was a single thing that you looked at to understand if someone's going to pay you back in the future, what you'd look at is have you paid me back in the past? And, and that's the credit bureau, the credit files. Now we're always looking for additional data that has some caloric and predictive value that that can improve the decision. And that's where our software comes in. Our software can ingest much more than just the data at the credit bureau. Our software ingests any and all data, first-party data, third-party data, the credit bureau data. And on the basis of all that and applying a lot of fancy analytics, we get to a, a yet more sophisticated decision. Me, but both our scores and software are aimed at, at evaluating credit consumer.
3: Let me ask you a dumbass question. <laughs> That's this. If I wanted to boost my credit score quickly... What is the best thing I can do as a consumer to do that? Is it to make sure I pay my cards on time? Is it to not carry seven cards, but maybe two? What is it that would boost my score the most and quickest?
10: Well, I, I would refer you to myfipo.com, where we have a lot of educational content on how to boost your score. Cool. It's not okay. a secret. We share it, and we, we want people to work on it. But just, just a couple of things for the people who aren't going to go there. Um, yeah, exactly. You want to pay your bills on time. That's one of the number one things you can do. You want to not max out your cards. Don't overdraw. That's another thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Don't ask for too much credit at once because that's a signal that you're desperate. Um, and there are a handful of other things and, and at myfico.com, you can learn what they are.
3: Well, if I knew my score, I'd tell you right now and I'd say, yeah, I'll show you mine if you'll show me yours, but at any rate, thanks for being with us, Will. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Will Lansing of FICO. All right. Coming up, Starbucks going to save a billion dollars with more efficient stores over the next few years. The improvements coming and how unionized baristas contributed to those changes. That's next. Starbucks unveiling a new store model at my hometown of Washington, D.C. today. Kate Rogers joins us now with the details. Hey, Kate.
2: Hey there, Tyler. The company introducing today its inclusive stores framework, opening a first location, as you said, in Washington, D.C., with some key upgrades, including a new point-of-sale system that will have voice assist and screen magnification, as well as support for language diversity. Customer order boards will also give visual updates. There are new acoustics and lighting features and power-operated doors that are going to be easier to activate from different heights and angles. All newly built and renovated Starbucks stores in the U.S. will incorporate this framework in the future in some capacity, as the company looks to grow its U.S. footprint by 4% this year from 16,000 locations. That includes a number of licensed stores. North America's president for Starbucks, Sarah Trilling, tells CNBC the expected ROI on this is meaningful.
8: I think about it as something that's going to, you know, um, help us, right, in terms of customer connection. It's going to help us in terms of employee engagement, partner engagement, um, and so if anything, you know, we're optimistic, you know, that we're going to get a, a great return on it as well. Now,
2: I asked Trilling, does this mean you're moving away from formats like drive through which have been hugely successful? She says not at all. And in fact, some of these upgrades, like better sound control, for example, actually help baristas working drive throughs as it's awfully loud in the store, and they're trying to hear better. Now, worth noting, store conditions were also a sticking point for some of the workers who have organized at Starbucks over the last few years. I'd mention also Sweetgreen and McDonald's have tested out some different store formats as of late, including some automated Sweetgreen locations, and of course, the new Cosmics location McDonald's has, which focuses on snacks and drinks. Tyler, so everyone's trying to figure out what the customer wants and keep workers. Happy. So
3: they plan to do this in new or renovated stores. Any idea on what it costs per store or what it would cost to do this? Not system wide necessarily, but the in kind of investment required here.
2: So it's not a material investment, according to Trilling. It's not materially more expensive than it would be uh, to build or remodel a store. It's just better design. And as you heard her say, this will be a better return on investment for Starbucks because they think baristas will be more engaged, and they also believe customers will be happier, right? Everyone's competing so, so hotly right now for all of these consumer dollars, and they, they want to make sure that customers are happy when they're spending, where they're spending. So I think all of these upgrades we're going to see across the sector are really key.
3: Very interesting. Okay, Kevin Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rogers. Thank you. Coming up, headsets, hybrids, high-end casinos. We're going around the world for three buys and a bail. That is next. Nice. All right, welcome back, everybody. If it's Friday, it's three buys and a bail. And since it's a long weekend, we're... That means we're traveling. Uh, we're looking at India, Japan, Macau, and China, and here with our trade, Stephanie Link, Hightower, Chief, Hightower Advisors Chief Investment Strategist and a CNBC contributor. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. First up... Uh, I'm good. How let's are go, you? I'm great. Let's go with Apple, coming off four straight down days, tech Check. giant eyeing India now. As its next big market and the source of uh, a big percentage of its cell phones, uh, the country's finance ministry says it's going to be the third largest economy in the world within three years. Are you buying Apple here, Steph?
11: I actually am, Tyler. I was underweight the stock all of last year, but I think down 8% from its highs. Trading at 28 times forward estimates relative to its historical average of 36 times, I think it's actually very attractive. We had a good quarter from the company in terms of earnings up 16%, EBIT up 12, free cash flow up 26. They got the March quarter guide down out of the way. And now I think the setup is pretty good into WWDC, which is their big event, where I think they're going to announce AI initiatives, possibly for the iPhone 16, which would be a positive for ASP. So I like the story here.
3: All right, let's move on a second to a company that is... Uh spent a lot of time investing in hybrid automobiles, and that is Toyota Motor. Uh, it is down slightly today. Yeah. Japanese carmaker, though, up more than 20% this year so far as its gamble on hybrid seems to be paying off. Investors are watching closely, though, as the Japanese economy slips into recession. you think Toyota can weather the downturn, Stephanie?
11: I- I do, I, I do, but I would buy this on pullbacks, Tyler. But I do like it. They're the best-selling automobile company in 2023. The hybrid strategy, as you mentioned, is going gangbusters. Actually, it rose 63 percent year over year last year, and that's 33 percent of their total revenues. They have a new product cycle story uh, for 2024 in terms of new, new, new cars, um, just refreshes, special editions, that sort of thing, and it's cheap, 10 times earnings.
3: The refreshed Prius is a really good-looking car. I saw one on the on the road today. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, the final buy yeah. is Las Vegas Sands, already up more than 10% so far this year. Uh, performance in Macau continue to impress uh, as high net worth consumers show no signs of slowing. Stephanie, your take on Sands.
11: Yeah, I like um, Las Vegas Sands. It's actually in the past year is down 1%, so it hasn't done anything. And I do think it's a play on Macau. Macau is 63% of EBITDA. Singapore is the remaining EBITDA. So you're, you're making the two big bets on those regions. And we are starting to see visitation uh, increasing in Macau as well as Singapore. And this company is going from VIP revenues, that being their big part of their business, to premium mass and mass. And actually they're seeing nice momentum sequentially in the the. upper single double, lower double digits sequentially. And we're also seeing operating margins expand as well. So I like it. Five billion in cash, $2 billion buyback. I like it a lot.
3: Las Vegas Sands has no Las Vegas, right? Or does it?
11: That's right. That's right. Nope. Uh, it's all no Macau Las Vegas. and it's Viva Las Singapore. Vegas,
3: said Travis Kelsey. No, sir. All right. Let's go to the bail, <laughs> which would be Nike, Stephanie, down more than 5 percent to start the year. Uh, more than 1,500 job cuts announced in a broad restructuring effort uh, in the wake of weak demand, uh, especially in its huge China market. Uh, Oppenheimer downgrading the stock. Uh, no quick fix. Stephanie, you agree with that?
11: I absolutely do. I've owned this in the past, but they've lost their way. So numbers have been coming down. China is a problem. We just talked about services being very strong in China. Goods, not so much. We have problems in the the EMEA. uh, EMEA, And uh, also, I think North America is actually getting, it's like fatigued. They underinvested during COVID and now they have to reinvest. So what are you going to pay on a multiple basis for a reinvestment story? As a result, you're going to see lower earnings and lower revenues. I think 29 times is too rich. So I'm a bail.
3: Yeah, a little high. And so you you would uh, wait and see on this one, clearly, uh, on Nike. My son's favorite stock, by the way. He loves the clothes. Whatever. Anyhow, is Steph, that, thank you very much. Right? Great to see you. Stephanie Link of Hightower Advisors. And great to have you with us here uh, on The Exchange. Power Lunch is coming up. Leslie Picker is getting ready. I will join her on the other side of this quick break. We'll be right back.
2: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.
6: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Next, give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, <laughs> that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? go give it to ya. Unlock the energy of the all-electric
0: ZDX Type S. Give Order now at Acura.com.